you would, grab your Bible and open with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so if you're trying to find Genesis, just open to the beginning and you're pretty close. In 2002, a a movie came out, and the, the name of the movie was We Were Soldiers, and the movie is centered around the 1st and 2nd battalions of the 7th Cavalry in some of the darkest days of the Vietnam War. And in maybe the most poignant scene in the entire movie, the the men have been inserted into the jungle. They have fought for over 24 hours. They have sustained casualties at close to 80%. And they realize they're surrounded, they're being overrun, there's no way that the rest of these men can make it out alive. And so they call in for a helicopter rescue. They secure a small place in a clearing of trees where the helicopter can come in, one helicopter, and rescue the men. And so this helicopter goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, rescuing men, bringing men out, some dead, some alive, many incredibly wounded However, as dusk begins to settle on this valley and in the jungle, they realize they're not going to be able to get every last soldier out alive, and so some of the men are left there. And the message comes from headquarters telling them that because the darkness is settling, it's grown too dangerous for them to to come in. There's no way they can find them. There's no way they can land and get the men out alive. And so the message is this, hold your position Help will arrive in the morning. Can you imagine what that must have been like? To be there in the jungle, surrounded by the enemy. And as it begins to grow dark in the jungle around you, to know that your only hope was to be rescued by someone else in the morning. To know that you were powerless to initiate your own rescue. To know that there was nothing you could do to speed up the process. I begin here this morning because today begins a three-week Advent sermon series. And when we think about Advent, oftentimes we just start with the birth of baby Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem. Or occasionally we might go all the way back to the angel visiting Mary and telling her that she would bear the Christ child. Or maybe we go even further back to some of the maybe minor or major prophets that talk about the birth of Jesus to come. But this morning I want us to zoom out and to move all the way back to the very beginning. And my goal this morning is to put into context for us why Jesus came and what he came to do so that we might better understand and better appreciate Jesus. And so, my goal this morning is to set the stage, to set our stage for Advent. Because although most of us have probably never been pinned down in the jungles of Vietnam, desperate for being rescued, all humanity, all humanity, is in desperate need of being rescued from sin and being rescued by the Son of God. And the longings of those men in Vietnam that night merely echo the longings of millions and billions of people 
for rescue from our sin. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to look at three separate pictures. So if you want to imagine maybe uh, a corridor in an art museum somewhere or, or maybe uh, on the, in the hallway at your home, I want to point out kind of three pictures that build upon one another. And I want to point out a few things about each picture that we look at this morning and then draw some application at the end. So first, picture number one, we could call this picture where it all began. Where it all began. And so I want to read from Genesis chapter 1. Hopefully I've stalled long enough for you to find Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to begin by reading in verse 26. The word of the Lord says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with the seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So we are right at the very beginning. God has just created everything from nothing, and he finishes his work of creation by creating or making humans. And this is where we as humans all begin. Now there are, again, lots of things that we could point out here and zoom in on and spend time talking about this morning, but I want to just highlight kind of three things about this picture of where we all began. First of all, notice that we are created by God himself. We humans are created by God himself. Verse 26 makes that clear. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God speaks, and the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, says, let us make man in our image, which means we are created by God. Now, I realize that may not be a shocking reality if you've read much of the Bible, but it is shocking if you consider for a moment the way we sometimes act. Because sometimes we act as though we are self-generated, we are self-made, we make decisions, and often our only thought is what we want. Our only goal is what would satisfy us, our own comfort, our own aspirations, our own visions and dreams and goals for the future with little regard for God or his kingdom or his priorities. But we owe our very allegiance to God. Our very existence is because of God and God alone. And lest we think 
that it's only Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman, that owe their existence to God. Psalm 139 is crystal clear that we, all of us, all of humanity, are knit together by God himself in our mother's womb. That God is the the originator of all of life, which is, incidentally, one of the reasons that we value life and the cause of life so much as Christians, as Pastor Nick pointed out in his prayer earlier. Because all of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. All of us are created by God. God's copyright is stamped on the soul of each and every human. Also notice, if we're looking at this picture about where it all began, notice that we are created not just by God, but we are created in God's image. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what it means to be created in God's image has been discussed and debated and argued and written about by theologians for a long time. But fundamentally, being made in God's image means that humans are specially created to relate to God. Being made in God's image fundamentally means that we as humans are made to relate to God. We're, relate, we're made to have a relationship with God in a way that no other part of creation can which means we are not designed to live apart from God. On the contrary, we are made to know God. We are made to be in right relationship with him, which is why the 5th century theologian Augustine would say very famously, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. third thing I would point out in this picture of where it all began is that we as humans are blessed and commissioned by God himself. Look at verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And so here in verse 28, God blesses Humanity and God gives to humanity, He gives to us our mission, which is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, which means the mission of the people of God is to make more people of God who rightly then relate to God. And this happens through raising up and training children to know and walk with God whether that be biological children or foster children or adoption. And it also happens through the work of evangelism and disciple-making and missions and the local church where we exist so that there would be more people who rightly relate to God. Now, as we look at this first picture of where it all began, if we hit the pause button right here, we would see that everything is good, right? Everything in Lego world, right? Everything would be awesome. Everything would be cool. 
They're part of a team with God at the head, right? This idyllic world, man and woman living in harmony with the creator who created them and the creation all around them. But if you know anything about anything, you know that that's not the world we live in, right? Which leads us to picture number two, which is where we see this mission beginning to unravel. Picture number two, we could call it where our condition turns tragic. So if picture number one was where it all began, picture number two is where our condition turns tragic. Look at chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who? told you that you were naked. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed Are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field? On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the fruit of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. A man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man, or he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So when we looked at this first picture, we saw this beautiful, idyllic image of creation as it was meant to be, humanity as we were meant to be, rightly relating to our creator, God. But this second picture is a transitionary picture. If you've ever wondered why our world is the way it is, why things are the way they are, Genesis chapter 3 tells us. There's a lot, again, that we could look at in this picture of where our condition turned tragic. But first, I want us to notice in this picture that our condition turns tragic because we are all in Adam. This is not just Adam's picture. This is not just Eve's picture. This is all of our picture because we are all in Adam. Now, you might be thinking, okay, time out. Wait a minute. (laughs) I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden. And so it's not really my fault, right? I shouldn't be held accountable. I shouldn't be held responsible because I wasn't in the Garden of Eden. And so this sounds an awful lot like when you're back in school and one or two kids act up and then everybody misses recess. Is that what this is like? Is that what's going on here? We know the answer is no. Scripture makes it clear that the answer is no. The answer is no because we have all descended from Adam. Adam is our representative head. The theological term is federal headship. It means that Adam represented humanity in the garden, so his failure is our failure as well. We are eternally connected to the outcome of Adam in the garden. And we see this in other places, even in our world today, imperfectly, but we see this in other places. For example, before a sporting event, typically there will be one or two or three or four players from each team who go out to the middle of the field and they meet with the referee, and the referee pulls out a coin and tosses a coin, and one of the players will say heads or tails. And depending on the action of one person The fate of the entire team rests, right? They know that they're going to either kick the ball off or they're going to receive the ball. They're going to defend the north goal or they're going to defend the south goal, all based on the actions of one individual. It's a federal headship of sorts. So today, if you happen to be a football person and you're watching football and you watch the beginning of the game, you can look at that and you can be reminded that in Adam all died. But lest you get too gloomy, unless we push back too much, like that's not fair. I don't want a representative head. I want to stand for myself. If we cannot accept our plunge into sin, if we can't accept the unfortunate catastrophic consequences of our sin because Adam represented us, then we can no longer be represented when Christ represents us. Because the Bible is clear that there is a second Adam. And just as we were all in the first Adam and fell, we by faith are in the second Adam and can be made alive. 
Just as no player on a team would say after losing the coin toss, that person no longer represents me. Like, he's not my captain, she's not my captain. I I don't like that result. No, win or lose, you're connected to that representative head. And so even though in Adam we are all plunged into sin, and we are all born from the very womb, deprived and depraved and, and warped by sin, the Bible is also clear that there is a second Adam. And that second Adam serves as a representative head, a federal head. And he succeeded where the first Adam failed. And Paul, writing about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, would say it like this, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Just as we all in Adam died, therefore those who are in Christ are a new creation. Therefore, it's clear that what happens here in Genesis chapter 3 is personal, right? It's us. It's our story as well. The second thing to notice about this picture of where our condition turns tragic is that our condition turns tragic because of our failure to honor God as God. Right? The sin here was more than just choosing poorly. Right? If you're my age or older, maybe you have kind of that vision of the scene at the end of the Indiana Jones movie with the knight, right? Like, you have chosen wisely or you have chosen poorly. But that's not what's going on here, right? With Adam and Eve in the garden, this was about choosing to reject God's rightful rule and his good rule in their lives. And our sin is the same. It's choosing to reject the rightful and good rule of God in our lives, I mean, just look at the details here in chapter 3. Verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and he he questions the word of God. Did God actually say? And what do Adam and Eve do? They put more weight on what they can see than what God has actually said. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she saw with her eyes that the tree was good for food. Well, it looks appealing, it looks good, and it's a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It intellectually makes sense and sounds wise. I'm going to trust that instead of trusting what God has said. And isn't our sin rooted in the same rebellion? I think There's greater joy found outside of obedience to God than inside obedience to God. I think if I just bend the rules or reject what God has said in this one small area, I think I can actually get what I want. I think I can be more satisfied. I think I can reach my goals. And this was and is an act of treason. I know what God has said, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be God instead. I'm going to determine my own path, even if it's contrary to the word of God. And this is why all sin is, at its root, a failure to honor God as he deserves. The third thing to notice in this picture of where our condition turns tragic is that our condition turns tragic because God is just and righteous and holy. 
Like if God were, were not just and righteous and holy, he could just kind of look the other way as sometimes fatigued parents do after long hours of trying to be consistent in our discipline. And then after a while, we just think, okay, I'll just pretend I didn't see it that time. But God does not, nor can he function that way because it would go against his very character. God is perfectly righteous and just and holy. Now, if we were to pause for a moment, put a parenthesis in here, and we were to skip ahead from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to today, so we would move past the cross, the fact that Jesus was born, the Messiah, that he did die on the cross for the sin of all who believe, that he did rise from the dead, defeating sin and death, that he did ascend back to the Father and is interceding on our behalf, if we moved all the way ahead to today, the fact that God is perfectly just and righteous and holy is actually good news. Because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of God. Jesus is perfectly holy when we are not. And God is perfectly just. And Jesus' death and resurrection was so that the just requirement of the law might be met in us who by faith believe. And it means that one day justice will completely and eternally prevail. Which means we can entrust ourselves to God while doing good, knowing that one day God will assure that justice is served. Even when we look around and we see on the news or we read in our social media feeds or we know in our own souls or through our own experiences that this world does not seem just. It does not seem fair. It does not seem righteous. We know that one day God will put all of that to rights because God himself is just and righteous and fair. But if we go back now to Genesis chapter 3, if we go back to the world in which we live, we know that sin separates us from God. It means that the special relationship with God is gone. It means that our sin has burned the bridge that once united us to God. And this is ultimately why God curses the creation at the end of chapter 3 here. Because there is something worse than separation from God. And that is being unaware of our separation from God. Unaware so that we might repent and turn. Being blissfully unaware that we were made for a relationship with God and yet know nothing about that. Which is why God curses the creation. It's why he curses the ground. It's why he... He adds trials and hardship to the good, wonderful, beautiful world that he has created. It's why he subjects the world to futility, according to Romans chapter 8. Not willingly, but in hope, Paul says in Romans 8. So God curses the world, God subjects the world, subjects creation to futility, the kind of futility that we experience all around us. 
when we recognize that relationships are broken and they're hard and they take work and sometimes our world is not fair when we see natural disasters and calamities and we see famines and people dying of cancer and incurable diseases. We recognize that we battle sleeplessness and anxiety and fear and restlessness even in our own soul. When we look in the mirror and we see crow's feet and gray hair, right? all of that is a part of the fall. And all of that is an act of God in hope that we one day would be free from our bondage to corruption, that we would obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God cursed the world in hope that this discomfort that we experience every single day would ultimately draw us back to God himself. So, once again, if we hit the pause button here on picture number two and we just lingered for another moment in front of this picture, we would see and remember that this perfect existence that God has created is now corrupted by sin. That humanity is very much like those soldiers in Vietnam, knowing that they needed to be rescued and aware that they were powerless to save themselves. And knowing that their only hope would come from someone outside of themselves. Which leads us then to our final picture. And this is where we hear about our rescue. Because tucked into the curses here in Genesis chapter 3 is an astounding prophecy of hope. Look at verse 15. God speaking to the serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God's promise to crush the head of the serpent with the offspring of the woman. This is God saying, there, there is an offspring to come, serpent, who will end you, who will do away with you. And he promises to end sin and the effects of sin forever through this offspring of the woman who would come. Like the faint Sounds of helicopter rotors off in the distance. This promise gives hope to every one of God's people ever since he proclaimed it. A reminder that that rescue is coming. That God will rescue his people. God will redeem his people. God will restore this broken world. So as we look at this picture of of the redemption to come, of the rescue promised by God, there are some things I think we should notice in this picture as well. First, we should notice that both the woman and the serpent have offspring. Now this is more than just why most people don't like snakes. Right? I don't think that really has anything to do with that. You may not be a snake person. Statistically, most people are not snake people. That's okay. That really has nothing to do. This is, we're not talking about the offspring of the serpent is more snakes. It's not the point here. These are not literal snakes or 
literal dragons, which is the same word that Revelation uses, snakes, dragons. They're actually human beings, but they are those who are under the influence of the enemy. In fact, we know this because Jesus addresses these kinds of people, the offspring of the serpent, when he confronted the Jewish false teachers in John chapter 8. And he tells them, you are of your father, the devil. You are the seed of the serpent. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character. He is a liar and the father of lies. There's offspring both of the serpent those who do not follow God, those who do not honor God as God, and there are offspring of the woman, those who are the people of God, who rightly acknowledge who God is. Notice, secondly, that there will be all-out war or enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. In fact, this is the way some of the biblical writers even interpret the sufferings and the trials of God's people. In other words, humanity is divided into two groups, the redeemed who love God and the unredeemed who love self, who stand against the ways of God. Psalm 2 makes this clear. The psalmist writes and says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, this is a messianic psalm about Jesus, but it's also a psalm about David and the Davidic people of God, the the people of God who, who rightly acknowledge who God is. We see this play out even today, don't we? We know that our struggle as God's people is, according to James, primarily against our own desires. But we also know that we live in a world and we live among people who do not honor the Lord and who sometimes work against the very gospel that we cherish. And this shouldn't surprise us. We should not be surprised when we take a stand for the cause of Christ or we take a stand for biblical morality or we take a stand for the sake of the gospel and we are ridiculed or we are unfriended or unfollowed or we're confronted or we're hated or we lose our job or we're despised. Like That should not surprise us. But that should not leave us discouraged either. Here's why. Because according to the word of God, the offspring of the woman has and will crush the head of the serpent. And while throughout the Bible there are individuals among the people of God who deal a blow against the seed of the serpent, think about David establishing the kingdom, think about Ruth, think about Moses, Ultimately, only one would finish off the serpent. And he would do so by being bruised on the heel. He would do so by being bruised for our transgressions. 
and crushed for our iniquities. He would suffer for our sin. He would be bruised. But through this very bruising, he would ultimately crush and end the serpent forever. And this is the rescue we need. And this is the rescue promised by God all the way back at the very point of humanity's fall. I mean, it's in the very conversation where God addresses humanity's fall that he gives them these words of hope. He will one day put an end to all sin. But what does all of this then mean for us? Because Jesus, the serpent crusher, has come. Right? That's what we celebrate this time of year. That Jesus came, that he had to come. That he had to come and do the work against the serpent. That he had to come and redeem, according to God's plan, the people of God. All who by faith trust in him. That he had to come and rise from the dead as a first fruits of our own resurrection. That he had to come for his own But now we who live in 2021, right? We live on the other side of Jesus' first advent. Jesus has already come. He's already died for the sin of all who believe. He's already been risen from the dead. He's already ascended back to the right hand of the Father. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that our rescue has been initiated and accomplished by the plan and the power of God. Galatians 4 says it like this, in the same way also when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, right? We needed rescuing. And like children, we could not redeem, we could not rescue ourselves. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we may receive adoption as sons. This is why Jesus was born. This is why Jesus died. This is why Jesus rose again. To redeem his own. And this also then means that our final rescue will come just as God has promised. Just as our rescuer has come in the first advent, there is a promised second advent where Jesus Christ will return. And just as he kept his promise to come, he will keep his promise to come again. And this is, again, what we celebrate at Christmas. Because Jesus did come, although he was wounded on the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent. And although the serpent still has a little life left in his tail, that's still wiggling all around and causing havoc in our world, we still live in a world affected by sin and the fall. We know that one day all of that will be fully destroyed and all who trust in Jesus will be saved for all eternity. And this is what we cling to even now when we await our rescue. Our final rescue from emotional trauma and physical pain and relational heartache and mental suffering. And we know, we look all around us and we still see the effects of the fall. We live in bodies that groan under the effects of a fallen world. We still experience the brokenness caused by sin every single day. 
And the offspring of the serpent still set themselves against the offspring of the woman. The people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a day coming when the final effects of Jesus' death blow will be seen. And we know it because Jesus has already come. He's already accomplished the victory. He has already, through his Holy Spirit, sealed his own for that day of redemption. And so we know that that rescue will come when he returns, this time returning not as a baby, but as a warrior king to redeem his own and to bring to reality the fullness of his salvation, to remake and renew and restore God's glorious creation, this time without even the possibility of sin. And so this morning, even as the people of God, you may feel some of that darkness around you. And the sounds of the rescue helicopter may still seem a long way off. But God is good to his word. Just as Jesus came once, he will come again to bring to fulfillment everything he has promised. And this is why Jesus had to come. And this is why the birth of this baby in Bethlehem changes everything. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.